Hi, this is Ideas on Craft, a podcast about ideas on growth, progress, and prosperity. Hi, everyone. I am on today with Andrew Nevin, the Chief Economist of PricewaterhouseCoopers in Nigeria. It's great to have you, Andrew. Great to be here, Toby. Thank you so much. I would like to start about taxes. Oil prices have collapsed and along with government revenue. So naturally, the government is looking towards taxes as a way to buffer the government's revenue source. What I just want to ask is how realistic is that plan, especially in the current economic climate? Well, I think that uh, we all understand by now that Nigeria collects a small amount in tax compared to other countries. So I think the number is about 6% of GDP, very small. So for the last few years, there's been this narrative from the government, we need to bring people into the tax net, people need to pay more taxes, more tax compliance, that I think we've all, we've all seen. And now, of course, with the collapse of oil revenues, there's essentially no tax revenue coming from oil for the next few months, at least, and maybe longer. So of course, the government is in a very difficult fiscal position. So naturally, they're going to say, you know, we now need to increase our efforts to bring people to the tax net to increase the tax revenue. There's, but there's two problems with that. The first problem, and we've highlighted this over the last four or five years, is it's very difficult to increase taxes when people feel like they're not getting services. So if we think about the social compact in Nigeria, certainly over decade that I've lived in Lagos, the social compact is simple. The government doesn't really tax you very much, but it also doesn't provide services. So people provide their own security, their own uh, electricity, their own health care, their own education, their own infrastructure. And that has been a social compact. It's not ideal, but that's the way it's worked. Now the government comes along and says, well, we want to bring you in the tax net. We want to increase taxes, the rates, the number of taxes. And people say, well, hold on a minute. You know, this social compact doesn't work unless I'm getting some services. So that's one challenge. The second challenge that we've talked about over the years and is really now quite a huge pressure is very hard to raise more taxes while the economy is not growing. Over the years from the 2015 recession, we still had very low growth, 1% to 2%, a little over 2% in 2019. So growth has been below population, which means that incomes have been going down, which means it's hard to take um, more money out of people. So both of those things are immense challenges. We now have this confluence of events where effectively half of the revenue or more than half of the revenue going to the federation accounts collapsed, and yet it's very difficult to take taxes from other places. It's interesting you talked about growth because uh, I was looking at data from the IMF a few days ago and per capita income in Nigeria has basically stagnated in the last four to five years. So basically people are not growing their income and it's very difficult to restart. But there's another argument that I would like you to explore with me, which is that is it also about capability for government? I mean, there's no national database, and that is not cheap. How significant a barrier is that to expanding the tax base? Well, I think that there's been a lot of progress on that. Certainly in in Lagos, where I live, I mean, the electronic records of the LIRS, the ability to bring people into the tax net, uh, the portal that they have, those things have got stronger and stronger over the last few years. And um, they've made progress on that. But I, I think that what you raised, Toby, is a really is a general point. I think there is a lot of capability, certainly the federal government, the Lagos government, which I know best, and other states, 
But I think sometimes the problem is the capability is spread too thin. We have you know, so many MDAs at the federal level. So you have a, a pool of very talented civil servants of people who come from the private sector. Just cite a couple, Dr. Jamoke at Pebeck, Yuanda Saduko at the NIPC, Engineer Chidi over at the concessioning group. I mean, you have some very high-quality people, high-quality staff, but when we have so many MDAs, sort of create complexity, and then there are pockets where the, the federal government or the state governments don't necessarily have enough capability. I think also at the state level, it's a real challenge. I mean, many, many states, as we know, have very small IGR. They haven't yet sort of got their records or their system in place to raise internally generated revenue from the businesses that do exist in the state. But the states are trying on that. But I, I think you highlight a really, uh, yes, a very critical issue. Yeah. Elon, income growth, what do you think has to change for per capita income to start growing in Nigeria? There, there are a few hypotheses that we are going to explore as we talk along, but just your general view, what would it take? What has to change? Well, I think uh, the, the perspective we've had over four or five years is pretty simple. Is I mean, people talk about this program and agriculture and small business and concessionary finance and all of these little pieces. But when you ask in general what the issue is, we need to grow. We've said for years that the country needs to have GDP growth of 6 to 8% a year to reduce poverty and alleviate unemployment. Why? Because population growth is probably almost 3% a year. So if we're growing at 6 to 8% per capita income, it will be 3 to 5% growth per year. So that starts to be meaningful over a few years. But more than just GDP growth, it needs to be inclusive. I think the period from 2010 to 2014, there was a lot of GDP growth, but it was not shared evenly or not shared appropriately through the country. So we need to grow 6 to 8%. Now, how does that happen? Well, at a very basic, almost mathematical or physics level, to grow requires investment. So how much investment? When we look around at the economics of this, some other countries, the investment needs to be close to 30% of GDP, which in NIRA terms, say in 2018, 2019, the economy was maybe 150 trillion Naira, so 30% is 45 trillion Naira of uh, what economists call gross capital formation. We're only getting a little more than half of that, maybe 25 trillion roughly. So we cannot grow 6 to 8% when there's not enough investment. Then that leads to a very simple question. Why is there not enough investment? I lived for 10 years in China. I went to China the first time in 1983, which was the beginning of their economic transformation. And they have uh, lifted uh, five, six hundred million people out of poverty. They've grown eight to eleven percent, eight to twelve percent, six to ten percent for forty years almost now. And how did they do it? Well, you have to invest. So we have to invest in Nigeria. And the question is, given that Nigeria is probably the number one economic story on the planet right now for potential, why are people not investing in Nigeria? Why are Nigerians not investing enough? Why is the diaspora who have resources and know the country not investing enough? And then if those two groups invest, your foreign investors, direct investors will also invest, but they're not investing. So that's the question we've posed to the federal government. And you asked a general level. At a general level, if we don't get investment up, we won't be able to bring people out of poverty. Now, why are people not investing? If we wanted to put it very simply, what we say is right now, it's too complex and too costly in Nigeria to do business. Despite the incredible efforts of Dr. Jamoke, who's a national heroine over at Pebeck, it's still too hard. Too many agencies, too many costs, too much complexity. So people choose not to invest. I was talking yesterday to the CEO of a major 
Nigerian company, very successful company. And he was talking about one of the global giants that I won't name here, but who was evaluating between South Africa and Nigeria for coming into the country. And they made the decision, they'll eventually come to Nigeria, but they made the decision for the moment to go to South Africa. And he said it was very simple. They just found it too complex dealing with too many agencies, too many taxes, like not just the level of taxes, but the complexity of taxes. So until the federal government and the state governments are serious about wanting to make it an attraction, and I say this, sorry, let me also add, Toby, I say this not as just the chief economist. I mean, in my main role at PwC is I oversee our financial services practice. So, you know, I'm out serving clients. I run a business, PwC. I also have two technology companies that I've helped found in Nigeria. So, you know, I'm doing business. I'm not just speaking about it. And I can tell you, it is not easy in Nigeria. So we have this incredible opportunity. We have incredible entrepreneurs, both Nigerians in Nigeria, the diaspora, uh, and yet it's not being tapped quite yet. That's interesting. You mentioned China. So let's explore that. Everybody would love to copy the East Asian model, right? But in Nigeria, it seems, at least to me, that we are still doing import substitution industrialization rather than export-oriented manufacturing that lifted Asia out of poverty. Now, I'm asking at a conceptual level, what has to change in policy circle for us to see the distinction between those two models? Well, I think to, uh, to begin with, I mean, I said I've lived 10 years in China. I think there's some positive things we can take from it. But the truth is China is not a democracy, right? It's a uh, autocratic, one-party state. And I'm not sure it's a great model. I mean, maybe in the end that will win out economically. It would make me very uh, distressed, but I, I prefer democracy. And Nigeria's democracy is a work in progress, but it's a democracy. I think that we've advocated over the last one or two years that the right, and of course people come all the time, I can go to conferences and people say Rwanda, Singapore as, as models for Nigeria. We've said very clearly, we think, look, if you're going to take one country as the model for Nigeria that we have the most lessons to learn from, it's actually India. And why? India is a large, diverse country. It has religious differences, it has cultural differences, it has geographic differences, it has very different topography. And no one can argue that Nigeria is more complex than India. They're both complex. India, like Nigeria, is a messy democracy, a work in progress. But despite that, they have made a lot of economic progress in the last 25 years, really unlocking things starting in the, in the beginning of the 90s. And then when you go to the, the economic model, what unlocked it for India was not exporting goods, uh, physical goods. It was exporting services, particularly around IT. So one of the things that we are starting to say is, like, should we be focused so much on exporting physical goods? Because if you think about where we're at, a couple of things are going on. One, of course, is to export a physical good, it just requires a real improvement in the infrastructure that we have, port infrastructure, road infrastructure, to bring down the cost to be competitive. But secondly... Where are we going to export to? You think about what's happening in the world. The population in Europe is shrinking. The population in North America is basically flat. Are we going to be able to export into a shrinking market into Europe? There are already people that export physical goods into Europe. Can we displace them? I'm not sure that we can that easily. Can we export to India? Well, they have their own manufacturing. Can we export to China? Well, they're sending their manufacturing here. So I'm, I'm starting to think that we should kind of leapfrog and actually go back to the lessons from India and export Nigerian brains without exporting 
the people. If we go back for a minute to the way the economy works here, the biggest source of FX is actually the diaspora. So Nigeria, unlike many countries, I mean, many countries have a diaspora, but the thing about the Nigerian diaspora is they are at the top end of the income ladder. They're the best educated group in the United States. They earn above the average American, which is an amazing accomplishment for a new immigrant group. We're exporting Nigerian brains, and then a lot of money flows back. Now, they ask the question, can Nigeria export people, but without people leaving Nigeria, so that they're working in Nigeria, but they're earning foreign exchange, they're being paid at a global level or a little bit below because that's what people you know, need from the demand side. Uh, and it's starting to happen. So I want to highlight on this show just one incredible woman, incredible Nigerian heroine and company. So this is a company called Outsource Global, which is based in uh, Kaduna and Abuja. And it outsources to global companies for different kinds of support, things, call centers, but also the other support that's not necessarily voice-to-voice, but uh, you know, task, legal tasks in some cases. It has over a 1,000 seats on there. And it's founded by this amazing woman, Amal Hassan. And uh, it's growing in the COVID-19 because people need more remote working. So think about what's happening here. We now are exporting Nigerian brains, very high value added. They're not physically leaving Nigeria. And this is starting to happen. If you look at some of the global companies like Microsoft, for example, they're putting more and more of their development into Nigeria. So what is that? Again, that's an export of Nigerian people, of Nigerian brains. So I'm starting to think that rather than advocating for trying to follow the East Asian model, that model is, is you know, gone historically. We should follow more the Indian model, companies like uh, Wipro, Infosys in the 90s, which are giants now and employ millions of people in India. Tech Experts is another one in Nigeria that's exporting Nigerian brains. So to me, that's a higher value-added path uh, at the moment. My follow-up to that would be, that requires a relatively high level of human capital. And the distribution is unequal. And uh, the ability to take advantage of that opportunity it will be unequal as well. Uh, maybe it will be different for Lagos, Kaduna, as opposed to or So now, my question is, do we really have to adopt a distributed, varied development strategy at this subnational level. Well, sorry, let me just go back to what the, the, the point you made about the, the exporting people being a high end. Absolutely, right? So, but we're, remember, you want to export high value added things. That doesn't mean it's the whole economic strategy. So, in terms of domestic sectors, we've said for four years now the number one sector is real estate. Um, why? Because, first off, there's a housing deficit. I don't want to give the number because the number that's being repeated, very large number, is not accurate. We don't have that many homeless people in Nigeria. But a lot of people live in substandard housing, and there is a housing deficit. And we need more housing, not for the high end, but for the middle-income people, lower-middle-income people. And that drives employment domestically. So we're not exporting housing, but we're, we're doing housing. That is the biggest sector for us. And the reason it drives employment is every time you build, you need local building materials, you need carpenters, electricians, plumbers, laborers, caterers come on site. And once a place is sold, the family that moves in, they want to furnish it uh, over time. So that, that drives other industries on there. So that's one domestic industry. Agro-processing, we're very keen on as well. We've written a lot on it. But again, it may not be for export. Some of it could be for export, cashews. Maybe eventually palm oil will export. But, of course, we have such big domestic uses. It's just even the domestic use of that is, is, is huge. So I don't want to say that the, 
uh, exporting brains as the whole economic strategy, because you're right, it's a, but it's so high value added that if we had, I don't know, if we had 100,000 educated Nigerians exporting their brain but sitting in Nigeria, it would have a massive impact on the economy because, of course, they're earning good uh, good salary and now they're spending the salary and they're buying homes and that's employing the laborers and you get the normal the normal sort of uh, knock-on effect. So, so we need the you know, so export strategy and we also need kind of the domestic strategy. Now, your question about subnational, yeah. So, I mean, we've said for a long time that one of the major issues in Nigeria is the imbalance of economic development. So we have Lagos 30, 40% of the formal economy in Nigeria, and yet many people who are in Lagos that come to work, but they don't want to be in Lagos. You know, All of us who live in Lagos are aware of the challenges with the traffic, with the infrastructure. And if you talk to some of the senior political people in Lagos, they'll say the biggest problem we're having in Lagos is every time we address something, we get more people coming in. So we need development across the country. We need it in Cross River. We need it in Sokoto. We need it in Niger. We need it in the Northeast as well. But I think that what's happened over the last three years is it's not just us saying this. I think everyone recognizes that domestically people are doing this. And you start to see the emergence of some really incredible governors who have taken responsibility for their their states. To name a few that I'm familiar with, His Excellency Governor Al Rufai in Kaduna, working very hard to move the state forward, Governor Makinda in uh, Oyo State, Governor Obaseki. I mean obviously there's some political challenges in Edo State, but you know, he's very focused on on the right thing. So I think that's a great movement forward. And the federal government recognizes this too. So again we talk about Pebec and Dr. Jamoke, we talk about the National Investment Promotion Council with uh, Yolanda, um, those groups are now working at the subnational level. I think that's a major step forward for the country, and we're going to start to see the fruits of it. I think most governors recognize they themselves have to be out uh, getting this investment I talked about earlier and are making real efforts. So I think we should be encouraged by that. But it's got to accelerate. We have to take the pressure off Lagos, and we have to give young people in particular a reason to want to stay in their state or not necessarily move to Lagos, to move to, to some other commercial center where they can find opportunities. All right. Industrialization. How plausible is it as a hypothesis for slow growth in Nigeria? I mean, services is growing really fast, and in terms of value added, it has a higher share of the economy, and agriculture has also a large share, but industry has shrunk over the last few decades. So how plausible is deindustrialization as an hypothesis for slow growth in Nigeria? Well, I think that, I mean, we all understand the challenges that uh, industry, or so if you talk to MAN, the Manufacturers Association of Nigeria, for example, I mean, all the members there understand how just difficult it is to operate. And, of course, you have power issues, you have infrastructure issues, et cetera. Um, but before commenting on that, one, one thing that's important, too, though, to remember is sometimes these statistics are difficult to interpret. So if you look at the division in the country between services, agriculture, and manufacturing, you get certain numbers. But if we have a tomato-based processing plant, does that get classified as agriculture or manufacturing? So I'm not so worried about kind of the the, the statistics uh, because it's very arbitrary, but it's just what's happening on on the ground. But in terms of the manufacturing side of things or agro-processing, which I think is a big component of it that should grow. And of course, it already happens. We have companies that do agro-processing. We have flour mills, UAC, Dangote, that do a lot of this. But of course, it's been difficult. I mean, as I said before, people have to build their own infrastructure, their own uh, power situation, etc. So 
man has said, we've said, others have said, it's so obvious that precondition to moving forward for more value-added manufacturing in any sector is obviously power. We've struggled with the privatization that happened in 2013, but it seems sensible. Oh, privatization, hopefully that will lead to a better power situation. But the truth is it's got worse. Um, and I think now the whole country, everyone recognizes that. But I'm quite hopeful on the power situation. Again, first off, there's being admission by everyone and every government, uh, every private sector that we're in a power emergency. Two, you've got one of the leading figures, uh, leaders in this country, stepping up to lead the new um, super committee that's looking at power. And I expect they're going to come out with some, uh, sorry, let me also say, I just, um, that I'm very, very happy that Governor El Rufai has, has recovered from the COVID-19 virus. I mean, it makes you realize how everyone at every level of society is, is, is vulnerable. So thank God that he recovered. But Governor El Rufai, I expect that committee comes out with his its recommendations to do some radical things on that, recognizing, obviously, we need a cost-reflective tariff. We need a way bottom of the pyramid can get access to some power. We also need some probably decentralization because there's so many technologies for power and so many decisions to be made. It's difficult to make them all at the center. But I do think that will unlock a lot of um, a lot of these issues over the next few years. I'm very hopeful on the power situation. On the power issue, if you have to come up with, say, three things that would really need to happen for that sector to see the needed change, what would be on your list? Well, I, I, let me just, we'll, I'll give you one thing that we that, uh, we see. So we did put out a paper that suggested actually that we should focus the power that we have, uninterruptible power, to um, manufacturing, charge them more for it, but they're willing to pay for that. But um, And that's one idea. But the big idea that we put out for three or four years is simply decentralization. I mean, if you look around the world, so I'm Canadian. I think most people who follow me know that. We often on Twitter have discussions about immigration to Canada from Nigeria. And, uh, uh, but in Canada, power is a provincial issue. So you have Nova Scotia, which is a province of about a million people. And I think it has, I'm just guessing, probably between the two and 400,000 customers between residential, commercial, and um, industrial. And it's a provincial matter. There, I, as far as I know, there, I don't even think there's a national regulator of electricity in, in Canada. So the provinces sort out their own electricity. There's lots of different models, some privatization, some state uh, pub public sector-led pieces of it, and it works fine. And then, of course, the provinces sell power between themselves. They sell power to the United States. So there's the power from Niagara Falls, which is the large, uh, I'm sure people have seen pictures of it, but not far from where I grew up, which is a massive hydroelectric dam there, sells its power to New York State. And the federal government doesn't get involved. So if you wanted to put one big idea out there, it's decentralization. Today, the decentralization is even more critical because there's so many technologies to produce power on a smaller scale than we had before. You go back to when I grew up in the 60s, you had this image of big power plants, big thermal plants, big hydroelectric plants, big nuclear plants. Now power can be produced in situ where you're at at smaller scale. So if you take gas to power, for example, the scale economics uh, aren't that strong. So if you have gas, you can produce power locally for, for local needs. So in answer to your question of three big ideas, let me put out one big idea, which is let's decentralize the power decisions. And I think if you told states, 
get on with your own power situation, they would find local solutions to their own situation to make sure that they had power, that their manufacturers had power, that the bottom of the pyramid had access to some power and, and subsidized rates. But those decisions can only be sorted out locally. Interesting. I mean, decentralization seem like the solution to a lot of problems in Nigeria. Well, I mean, people say to, to me, you know, why do you stay in, in Nigeria and you've lived all over the world and you can be anywhere? And I said, this this is the future. I mean, as we know, the population projections having us come third largest, most populous nation, uh, hopefully in my lifetime, we'll see that. It's the biggest economic opportunity. People are incredibly entrepreneurial in tough conditions. So how do you unleash that, that energy? I mean, it's just easier to let people get on with it at a, at a kind of local level. But I'm not the only one, or PwC is not the only one saying this. As I said, there's now widespread recognition that things have to happen at a subnational level. I mean, of course, in, you know, one powerful dynamic that you want to see in the country is uh, if a state has a, a great governor, I mean, Governor McKinda focused on health care, focused on education, focused on continuing the projects of his predecessor rather than abandoning them and wasting wasting those resources. If the governor in the next state is not doing the same thing, people are going to say, hey, oil is moving forward, How, you know, and they're going to hopefully elect someone. But that goes back to what we talked about earlier. It's an imperfect democracy, but all we can do is push forward. I will want to talk about the central bank, how central banking is being done in Nigeria. Now, take the power situation. The central bank governor has been on a tour in the last couple of years that, oh, this sector, textile, whatever, oh, this power is the problem. And this is what we are doing to finance power provision. My question is, should that really be the remit of the central bank? Well, I mean, I think we just go back in, in history a little, a little or short term history. So what brought me to Nigeria was the financial crisis and well, in the developed world, 2008 and moved to Nigeria in 2009. And my first client in Nigeria was uh, the Central Bank of Nigeria when Governor Sanusi, who, of course, became the Amir of Kano and now is no longer the Amir of Kano, uh, was running it. And he in 2013, I was at the. Bankers Committee strategic retreat in uh, Calabar and Cross River, and that was his last Bankers Committee retreat, right? So CNBC came to the meeting, and they asked him this, and, the, and we all watched while he was interviewed. So it was sort of a live interview with us in the room, and the bank CEOs and people like me, advisory people sitting in the back or the sides. And uh, they asked him exactly that question seven years ago because he started the intervention um, programs. And in fact, some of the work that we did with him early was what encouraged his interest in agriculture because we pointed out that agriculture was 35 or 38 percent of the economy, but it had none of the lending. So that got him thinking about that. So he said, look, I get you. I mean, we can look around at different central banks around the world and they don't do things, you know, what we're doing here. And he said, but the reason I'm doing it is if we don't do it, uh, who else is going to do it? Central bank has always been the federal government uh, MDA that has the most capability, very talented people uh, on their high quality organizations. So they've sort of stepped into the breach. That said, you know, given your question, I guess, you know, we've sort of said, look, you know, we've, we're asking too much of the central bank in Nigeria. Sometimes I'll go on television and the uh, Monetary Policy Committee will be meeting uh, and, uh, the next day or next week, and I'll be asked, should they cut rates, raise rates 13%, 12.5%, 13.5%. And I say, look, I don't even think that question is that important because the, the issues that we have in Nigeria, the central bank can't solve 
that way. We have, I won't even call them fiscal issues. We have structural issues that can only be solved by the executive and the legislature at the federal level and the state levels working together, for example, on real estate to unlock the real estate sector. So we asked too much of the central bank. I wish it wouldn't get so much attention. If you look at developed economies, if I take Canada, for example, I don't think most people can name the central bank governor. He just he does his part on that, adjusts interest rates, some monetary policy interventions to smooth some things. But basically, the economy works because it's structurally sound. And to give you an analogy, the central bank governor of any central bank in the world is a race car driver. But if you give them a car from the 1920s, it's only going to go as fast as a car from the 1920s goes. If you give them a car from the 1950s, it's only going to go as fast as a car from the 1950s. And if you give them a car from 2020, Ferrari, you know, F1 Ferrari, it's going to go that fast. So the issue that pe- people should not be putting so much pressure on the central bank of Nigeria to fix our economic uh, and social challenges, it's going to be fixed elsewhere. Forgive me, Andrew. This leads me to a sort of question about institutions generally. Yeah, Sanusi started this, and maybe, just maybe, he had the sense to know where the limits are, the extent of the capability of the central bank to actually solve what you have also said are structural problems that should be fixed at political and uh, fiscal level. In Nigeria. Now, we've had some situation in the last couple of years where the central bank itself has been the source of domestic economic distortions in terms of prices and exchange rates. I mean, I was reading a paper a few days ago by the former World Bank chief economist where he clearly said that there is some evidence, as much as we know what evidence are in economics, that there is some evidence that central banks in developing countries would generate a lot less distortions if they adopt some kind of rule-based intervention in the markets as opposed to discretions, you know. Now, what I want to ask you is this. Is it time for some kind of rule-based regime at the central bank? some kind of legislative oversight over what the central bank is allowed to do, you know. So we don't have a situation where central banking will only function according to the disposition of the personnel in charge. No, I think, I mean, I, I, I would agree with that. But the way I would phrase this is we need to take pressure off the central bank. I mean, the legislative and the executive arms need to say, okay, we get it. There's a limit to what central bank can do. Uh, obviously, central bank needs to be involved with questions around the currency, interest rates, uh, stability of the financial sector. Let's simplify your role here, and you can do that, and we'll create rules that send positive signals to people involved in the economy and investors to do that. That would be great, but then legislative and executive arms then need to take on the task of doing what needs to be done to fix the economy structurally. In a way, what's happening is the central bank is intervening in tomatoes, intervening in SMEs, intervening in cultural things in the power sector because the the other arms of government have not – 
um, stepped up to their responsibility. So, I mean, absolutely. But it would have to be part of a whole package. I mean, it wasn't like the central bank was entering into terrain that was being you know, already done. They entered in because there was a vacuum. So if, the, if we wanted to have a more rule-based approach to monetary policy, I mean, absolutely that would benefit the country. But it also requires the other pieces of the national leadership to do their parts. So it needs to be part of a comprehensive uh, whole. Okay, another question I want to ask you on that is, I spoke to Nonsu on this show a couple of weeks ago. You know Nonsu, Nikki Lee. Mm. Uh, and one point he raised is that over the last 10 years, so, there have been not too many economists at the central bank. Bankers have sort of exerted a lot more influence on, on central bank. Now, should we separate banking regulation from money? Would that be a like they did in the UK, for example? Uh, it's a good question. So Canada, where I, you know, everyone knows I'm Canadian, I mean, we, those functions are separated. The Central Bank of Canada uh, is effectively just doing monetary policy. The regulation of the banks themselves, I mean, we have five big banks and some other banks, and of course, a larger financial sector is regulated by another group works perfectly fine for us. So I think it's certainly an option. I mean, one of the things people may not realize, just for historical reasons, if I remember right, two-thirds of the banks are uh, supervised by the central bank and one-third are supervised by the NIDC. Just for historical reasons, they use the same standards as an example. So we already have supervision done by non-CBN group there. Um, I mean, both models can work, but I think it's probably, you're right, easier uh, in a leadership sense, if the central bank can just focus on the core issues of monetary policy, exchange rate policy, interest rates, and then some other group does the, the does the supervision. But I think that issue in the context of our overall problems is probably a secondary issue for the moment. Interesting. Uh, let's go a bit out of that hobby. Yeah, a bit. The creative industry, Nollywood, music, and, and all. How much of a growth potential does it have? I mean, Netflix is now in Nigeria, and there's a lot of excitement. I mean, it's it's massive. So we've done some work in the creative industries and how to get funds to them. I mean, even though there are lots of barriers, you still see incredible success of the music industry and now the Nollywood industry around the world. Of course, it's massive domestically. But to make it uh, grow more, we need to have a little more structure in the industry, in particular the people that are creative and who create these incredible products need to be able to get the, the fruits of their labor. I mean, issues around piracy and distribution. But I think enough people have recognized this now. As I said, we've done some work. There's people, groups with money outside of Nigeria who now recognize they want to invest in this industry. And again, I was saying earlier, uh, Outsource Global, uh, Tech Experts, uh, Microsoft are exporting Nigerian brains and earning uh, FX for the country increasingly. Nollywood and the music industry as well are earning FX for the country, are big exports. And of course, it's not just those, it's also fashion, for example, is a big part of it, African fashion. People around the world are listening. Last um, after dinner, we listen to uh, Nigerian music. It's just that's that's what we we do now. It's fantastic, and and I think, of course, it's just also a fun fun industry. And you know, one of the things that Nigeria does um, better than any other place I've ever really lived is events. It's just incredible when you sort of see. So, the, and of course, it's tied together, and uh, nightclubs, parties, all of that is tied together with the entertainment industry. And 
is a great part of Nigeria. So I think it, it should get a lot of attention. Now, one of the things that's critical to it, of course, is, I guess, financing. What's happened over the last few years is the you know, banks have become a little more specialized in what they support. Five years ago, you never heard of this, but now there are some banks, I won't name them here, but they are, are focused on the entertainment industry. And the way it works in banking or financial industry is really need sector expertise. So if you look at, uh, say, for example, Sterling Bank, they have a public strategy, health, education, agriculture, renewables, and transport. So they really go deep in those sectors. FCMB has come out very clearly, says so it's going to be an agricultural focus. And there's some other banks, as I said, who are now focused on Nollywood and the music industry. So to the extent they get expertise, they have better ways of channeling money into it. So I think we'll see it develop rapidly, and that should be encouraged. And again, it's a service industry, but it has great potential to generate value for Nigeria. Okay. Now let's talk about the tech sector. You're an investor and also an entrepreneur in that sector. What is the current state? I'm asking this because, of course, this is going to be a bit controversial. I have a few friends who think that the way things are currently is still a bit overrated. Tech sector. The tech sector yeah. is overrated. Yeah. Well, I think the thing about the tech sector you have to remember is I meet so many young entrepreneurs. I always make time. Someone reaches out on LinkedIn. I'll read a business plan. And, you know, the energy level of the entrepreneurs is fantastic. And just the sheer courage to try something. But the truth is in these sorts of startup tech things, most of them are going to fail. You know, sometimes the young entrepreneur is absolutely convinced of his or her success, which is fantastic. You need that energy. But the point is you might have 50 fail, but if you have three that succeed in a big way that make a difference to Nigeria, that's what we want, right? I don't want us to focus on the failures. What I want us to focus on is how do you create something that works in the Nigerian conditions? So if we take two areas or three areas, so we take ed tech, health tech and clean tech, energy. So, you know, health and education. We've said it's basically impossible for Nigeria to duplicate the models that were built 150 years ago in these areas in developed countries. So if you think of medicine, you have physical doctor, physical nurse, you have one doctor for every 500 people on that. We can't mathematically ever get that many doctors in the right location. So there has to be some technological health tech kind of breakthrough to deliver and i know lots of people working on it you know we should encourage that and there'll be emerge out of that some successful ones that find the right model that hook things together similarly in education particularly with covid19 people have started to realize they can learn remotely they can interact with people remotely you know how do we solve it for education for nigeria but Again, the local conditions are so critical. So I've seen some people try to bring solutions from developed markets, but we don't have the power, we don't have the bandwidth, and it, the solution fails. What I want to encourage are young entrepreneurs who try to find things that work under the Nigerian conditions and can piece together these challenges and solve it. But clean tech, as I mentioned, exactly the same thing. I mean, even if we built out the grid, we'd still have, I think, estimated for Africa – if the grid was built out economically, you'd still have four or 500 million people who are not connected to the grid in Africa um, in 10 years. So the only way to deliver power to them is in situ, like where they live. And the only way to do that 
is obviously through solar, right? Because if you have to deliver them some kind of fuel, one, that pollutes, but two, it's just the same problem as the grid. It doesn't really solve the issues. Again, what are the solar solutions that are, that are coming through? And Lagos is actually the um, center of solar technology around the world, small-scale solar right now. So we have so many companies trying so many different things. Some will fail, or many will fail, some will work. So I, what I would say about the tech industry, yeah, there's a lot of hype. One of the areas, for example, that I'm not so convinced about is uh, AI, artificial intelligence. You're always hearing about it. What does it really mean? But out of that hype, there's going to be people that build organizations and companies that solve real problems for, for Nigerians. How significant is the talent gap in that sector? I mean, Jumia has uh, their engineering staff in Portugal. I know a popular fintech that has their engineering staff in Turkey. And is that a function of our low investment in education? Well, I mean, the thing is, we know that when Nigerians are given any opportunity, they're incredible learners. We said before this diaspora that's gone and done great things in many countries when they get the education. And but in answer to the question, Toby, yeah, we the country is underinvested. I mean, we people are not getting enough education. Resources are diverted to the wrong things. So. We've started to say the only thing that public monies should be spent on uh, are education, health, and to some extent, some infrastructure, particularly roads. Toll roads are quite inefficient, so it makes more sense for the public to finance the road, but not the port, not the airport, not Agiocota Steel, not uh, refineries. In a way, Nigeria has spent its money, and in many cases not got anything for it, has wasted its money in the wrong ways. And uh, the way we put it is the only thing the government should be investing in is Nigerian people, right? We invest in Nigerian people, economy is going to improve. You know, what you just described doesn't happen. We get programmers and IT people who are domestic. We get some of that exported through these kinds of companies I talked about. Some of it goes to the diaspora, but we get a flow back. But, yeah, we need to invest in people. It's that simple. So if there's one message that we as PwC would like to give the country is if public sector resources are invested in people, the country will thrive. Let's close it out with coronavirus, the pandemic. The conversation in Africa and, of course, Nigeria has been about how affordable are the economic costs of this weighed against the public health measures that have been taken with the lockdown and everything? You know, what some are calling a Keynesian supply shock that has caused even a larger plunge in, in demand and margins are down for a lot, a lot of companies. What I want to ask you is this. If you are in the room with the presidential committee or tax force that is responding to this. What are the things that we need to do to have the right balance between the economic cost and the public health measures right now? Well, Toby, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm wise enough to know the answer to that. I mean, I think we all grasp now just how difficult the situation is. And I really, as you said, the health unknowns, the economic challenges, Six or seven weeks ago, we said, look, the two things the country needs to focus on are, one, getting resources to the bottom of the pyramid, and two, keeping the food supply chain intact. You know, why is that? Because we, we understood a lot, you know, at the beginning of this, what would happen is if you have a lockdown, all the people who are in the informal economy or even the formal economy that are effectively earning daily income, daily wages, they're going to lose their jobs. So we've had tens of millions of people in Nigeria lose their source of livelihood in a very short space of time. 
everyone needs to eat. So getting them resources was the most important thing. And of course, it doesn't work if the food supply chain isn't intact. The issue with the food supply chain is you actually need some movement. Where food is grown is not the same place as where it's processed, which is not the same place where it's consumed. I think the government has done a good job of focusing on those two fundamental issues. I mean, it's imperfect. We don't really have a great system for getting um, resources at the bottom of the pyramid uh, on that. But I think that between the government, uh, civil society, private sector, people have recognized this issue and have really been doing the best they can. And, of course, individuals. I mean, every individual that's doing well in Nigeria is connected to people who rely on their daily wages. And you know, to the extent that they can, many I know are supporting people who've lost their livelihood. So in the short term... That's what the country needs to focus on, and I think that the federal government's done a good job. That said, it's just so complex. It's complex from a science, health perspective. We don't know everything about COVID-19, the transmission, asymptomatic people, how many people have it. It's uh, challenging from a testing viewpoint in a place like Nigeria. Testing has been ramped up, but still we haven't tested a lot of the population so I don't, I don't know the, the trade-off. I think the federal government emergency task force is doing the best job they can, but we're also seeing cracks with their coordination with the state-level governors. They're under pressure. We, we're all seeing what's happening in Kano, what the governor is saying about the relaxation during Ramadan of the Kano lockdown. Yet there were 100 new cases overnight in Kano. How many real cases are we going to test? So I, I, I'm not second-guessing the government. I think they've done all they can in a very difficult situation. And I think we're in for at least a few months of real challenges in Nigeria. And um, you know, I want everyone listening to stay safe, keep as many people safe as you can. It is not easy. Finally, Andrew, it's kind of a tradition on the show. What's the one idea that you would like to see everyone, either in Nigeria or globally, adopt? Uh, so we and I personally have started to advocate in Nigeria that we don't measure GDP, that we measure the progress of Nigeria by the progress on the sustainable development goals. The relationship between GDP and human welfare is not that strong. And uh, as we said, in the 2010 to 2014 period, GDP grew a lot, but the benefits were disproportionately distributed. SDGs are very clear. No hunger. No poverty, good education, clean water, access to health care. Those are things that actually really matter to the welfare of Nigerians. So the one big idea we have is rather than every day me stand up and talk about you know, GDP growth, 2.1%, 1.6%, 5%, whatever that number is, I would like to have a scorecard across the country in every state how is the state doing on the SDGs and have a way of gathering it? So you know, people like me can stand up and say, Quar is doing fantastic on these dimensions that really matter to people. Cross River is doing great. There's other states doing not so well. Lagos is making progress. I want the language, well, let's call it the lens, to shift from a GDP lens to a sustainable development goal lens in Nigeria. That's my one big idea for the day. That's interesting. Thank you very much, Andrew. It's been fantastic. Thank you, Toby. You can subscribe to the podcast and newsletter on untrapped.substack.com. Untrapped.substack.com. Thank you. Until next time.